0: I want to invite you tonight to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. The book of Ezra. Ezra is after 2 Chronicles, just before Nehemiah, in the first half of your Old Testament. This morning we finished Mark chapter 8. We are exactly halfway through the Gospel of Mark. There are 16 chapters. We've finished 8 of those. And so before we continue with the rest of Mark, we're going to take a few weeks and look at the book of Ezra. It's a short book. It'll give us a chance uh, to step back from Mark and look at a different section of Scripture for a few weeks. And then we'll go back to the book of Mark uh, around the 1st of July. But I want us to take a little time in the Old Testament over the next few weeks and look at the book of Ezra together tonight. The sermon will cover the first two chapters of Ezra. More than once in my life, I have failed to keep a commitment I've made. Um, More than once in my life, I've made some lame excuse and gone back on a promise or something of that nature. It grieves me to think about it now, but the sad truth is, I can't say that I have always, in all cases, been faithful to keep my word. And I bet you're like that. I bet you can remember times in your life when there were things you said you would do that you didn't do. Sometimes maybe no big deal, no real harm done. And then maybe sometimes people were hurt and there was harm done. It's one thing to go back on your word to people, that's bad enough. But how many of you have made promises or commitments to God and then failed to follow through? You ever done that? You ever told God, I'm going to do this, and then you failed to do it? To make a promise you made to God, as bad as that is, we've probably all done that. In spite of the fact that That you and I have not always been faithful to keep our promises to God. He has always been faithful to keep His promises to us. Amen? He is a promise-keeping God. And what I want to focus on this evening is not just the promise-keeping God, but I want us to begin to understand why God is faithful to His promises. What should that lead to? In other words, God's faithfulness to His Word is intended to provoke a specific response in you and me. So we might say the the main idea of this text is this. Because God is faithful to His Word, we must be faithful to His worship. You see, God's faithfulness to his word ultimately should provoke in us and lead us to a place of worship when we realize the faithfulness of our God. Well, we're going to look at Ezra tonight, the first two chapters. Most of you know the general story of Israel in the Old Testament. God brought Israel out of Egypt, made them their own nation brought them into the promised land, established them under King David. Two kings after David, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was wicked almost from the start, and in the year 722 BC, the Assyrians took them captive and carried them off to Babylon, and the northern kingdom disappeared, never to be reformed. The southern kingdom of Judah did a little better. They lasted a little longer, but they too persisted in wickedness. And in the year 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem and took the southern kingdom of Judah captive. Now when we come to the book of Ezra, we see how Israel has broken their covenant with God. and Over and over they worship false gods and they sin against the Lord. He brought the destruction on them that he'd promised. They were taken cap- to captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But God had promised that when that appointed time was over, the people would be restored to the land, Judah, And they would once again worship him. He would be their God and they would be his people. Now, just as God promised, at the end of their 70 years of exile, the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to re-inhabit the land and once again worship God according to the commands given through Moses. Ezra and Nehemiah are the books in the Bible that record the story Of the people of God coming back to Judah and Jerusalem from captivity. So we're going to begin a journey through Ezra tonight. Please stand with me as I read the first chapter of Ezra. Verses 1 through 11. In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia. that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares beside all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed. In the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold. 410 bowls of silver and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Please be seated. There are two themes that are emphasized very clearly in these two chapters. God's faithfulness and worship. So those are the two themes we see here. So let's just look at those two things. First of all, notice this. We are are shown clearly here God is faithful to His Word. Now, we need to keep in mind the promise God had made. Before we look at the verses specifically, we need to remember what God had promised. In Jeremiah, before... The southern kingdom was actually taken captive. God made some promises to his people through Jeremiah. Let me read you a couple of those. Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 38. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, talking about Jerusalem, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell in safety. So he's telling them that after your exile, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... In other words, when your 70 years of exile in Babylon are over, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. We also see this prophecy in Isaiah 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus... God said about Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, He is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. This was all what God stated before Israel was ever carried into captivity. He's giving these promises that when it's over, he's going to bring them back. Now what we see in Ezra chapter 1, is we see that promise of God being fulfilled. And we we notice God's power in fulfilling this promise. What you can see here is, it says, God stirred, verse 1, you see it? God stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. That word stirred means to awaken or, or to arouse. And it used God's covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel stirred up this king of Persia so that he would make a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Look what the proclamation was, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. Now here's a Persian king using the covenant name of God, which is a name used by Israel. He even calls him the God of heaven. You see it? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's acknowledging that the God of Israel is the sovereign God in control of all things. He has given me the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 3. Well, look, he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So God in his power moves upon the king of Persia, stirs his very spirit, so that Cyrus recognizes the God of Israel as the one sovereign God over all kingdoms. He acknowledges that his position and his power has been given to him by the God of Israel. And he says, God has charged me, commanded me to send the people back, the Jewish people back to build him a temple. You see verse 5, look what it says there. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. So there are two promises fulfilled. That God would send the people back to Jerusalem and that the temple would be rebuilt. The promises God made before they ever went into captivity through Cyrus the Great, king of the media and Persian Empire, God has now fulfilled these promises. It's God's power. But I also want you to see God's provision in how He fulfills these promises. Look at verse 4. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. You see what God's doing here? He's making provision for the temple to be built. In other words, giving them the physical provisions they need. And what he what he speaks of in verse 4 was actually fulfilled in verse 6. All who were about the Jewish people aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods and beasts, with costly wares, beside all that was freely offered. So God stirred Cyrus not only to send them back, let them rebuild the house, he commanded that they would be given wealth and goods and provision so that the temple could be rebuilt. And he even sent back the vessels of the house of the Lord. If you look in verses 7-10, through what you see is a list of articles that were taken from the temple. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple, you remember the temple had all kind of gold and silver items in it that were used for worship. Bowls and basins and censers used for burning incense and lampstands, and all of these valuable things used for worship. Nebuchadnezzar carried them all to Babylon. Well, Babylon was defeated by the Medes and the Persians, so all of those goods fell into the hands of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And when he sent the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, he sent the articles used for worship. He sent them back to Jerusalem to once again be used for worship. You see what God's doing here? Not only in his power is he sending the people back to rebuild the temple. Through Cyrus, God is making provision so that he can be worshipped. Now there's something very important. We didn't read chapter 2 because it's a very long chapter. Um, it's, It's 70 verses. And if you'll scan through the chapter real quick, what you'll notice is that it's mostly a list of names you see a list of the people who came back from Persia and were sent back to Jerusalem. He gives us the number of people and which family they were a part of, the priests, the names of the Levites, the number of the temple servants, uh, all of the sons of Solomon's servants, all of this We have all these genealogies, all their numbers. So you get out in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides the male and female servants. Now here's the question. Why does God take the time to give us the names of all these families and how many people came from Persia back? How many priests and how many Levites and Why does he go through all of this minute detail and give us all these names? Here's one very simple reason. Proof. Proof. In other words, it would be one thing for God to to write in the Scripture. The people went back to Jerusalem to rebuild. But so that God will give us more than just that word, he gives us a detailed list of exactly who came back. In other words, this would be so that the people who received Ezra's writing could verify it, you with me? He gives them a list of the people so they could, they could know exactly who it was. In other words, chapter 2 is proof that God kept his promise. If you're with me, do this. He said, I sent them back and here they are. Here's exactly how many from each family, how many priests, how many Levites, here's the whole number of Of the people. And when Ezra first wrote all this down and gave it to the people, the people would be able to verify this. God indeed kept his promise. Here's the thing I want you to see that chapter 1 makes very clear God is faithful to his word, he will not fail to do what he said he would do. He has the power to accomplish whatever it is that He has promised to accomplish. Look, God promised that the people would return to Jerusalem, and they did. God promised that the temple would be rebuilt, and it was. God promised that later on a Messiah would be sent, and He was. God promised that He would bring salvation and a new covenant to his people, and that salvation would spread even to the Gentiles, and it did. God promised to send the Holy Spirit, and that happened on the day of Pentecost. We can trace all through Scripture the promises that God made, and one after the other, after another, after another, we see that God kept all of the promises that he made. Now why is this significant? It means we can have absolute confidence in the promises of God that have not yet come to pass. You understand? When we see the promises of God that have come to fulfillment over and over and over and over, it gives us confidence within our own soul to know and trust that what God says He always does. What God says He always does. Think about the promises that have not been fulfilled yet but we can rest assured that they will because God always keeps His promises. The promise that death is not the end. The promise that Christ will come again to receive His own. The promise that He's preparing a place for us. The promise that we will share in His inheritance. The promise of eternal joy in His presence. These are all promises made by a God who always... Keeps his word, who's always faithful to his word. Listen, there is no truth, there is no reality more certain than this. God is faithful to his word. There is nothing you can be more certain of than that. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie, he will not, he does not, he cannot lie. Now go back to verse 1 of Ezra for just a minute. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's notice why all of this happens. Why God sends all the people back. Why God does all this. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God stirred up Cyrus to send the people back and build the temple. Why? So that God's promise could be fulfilled. God did this so that His Word would not fail. Listen, God is committed to keeping His Word. And what I want you to see now is the ultimate reason why God is committed to keeping His Word. We've seen that God is faithful to His Word. Now I want you to notice this. God's priority is His worship. God's priority is... Is his worship. This is so obvious as we just scan these two chapters. I want to show you a few things that are all related to worship. I want you to keep in mind the mission of the people when they went back to Jerusalem was to do what? Verse 2 Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple. The goal of sending the people back was to rebuild the temple. What is the temple? What is the central purpose of the temple? Worship. It's where the people came To worship. Verse 3. The people are released to go up to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild the house of the Lord. Again, the goal is to rebuild the temple, the place of worship. Verse 4. Provisions are provided by King Nebuchadnezzar so that the house of the Lord can be rebuilt. Verse 5. God stirred up the spirits of the people to go back and rebuild the temple. Verses 7-11. through Cyrus, God moves on the heart of Cyrus to send all the implements back to the temple that are used for worship. Now look in chapter 2, verse 36. The priests of the sons of Jediah. You see the priest, he's telling us here, the priests were sent back, the ones who were over the worship of the house of the Lord. Verse 40, the Levites, these are the ones who assisted the priests in the worship of the house of the Lord. So they've sent the people back to build the house, they've sent the provisions back so the temple could be built, they've sent the implements back to use for worship, they sent the priests back to oversee the worship, they've sent the Levites back To assist in carrying off, in carrying out the worship. Verse 43 Temple servants were sent back so that everything that needed to be done for worship could be done. From the beginning to the end of chapter 1 and 2, the emphasis is a concern for worship. God wants the people to come back to Jerusalem so that they might worship Him. That's what you need to see. God's reason for bringing the people back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple and reestablish them as a people who worshiped and served Him and Him alone. Why did God keep His promise? So that the people would come back and worship Him. So what is our response? To the the God who has been faithful to keep His promises to us that He made in Jesus. How do we respond to this God who has been so faithful to do all that He has promised? Our response is worship. I want to point out three specific things that the people did. Service, sanctification, and sacrifice. All this was part of their worship. Worship service. I want you to think about it. The people went back to rebuild the temple. They went back to engage in the work of the Lord, to serve Him. Sanctification. I I want you to look at the end of chapter 2. Verses 61 to 63. I I want to show you something here. Uh, Let me read these verses and let me show you what's going on here. Also of the sons of the priests, the son of Habaiah, the son of Pachaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gideite, the called by their name. These sought their registration among those who enrolled in genealogies but were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. Let me tell you what this is about. This is about sanctification. What does this mean? This means they were excluding men from the priesthood that they could not legitimately... Prove that they were of the right lineage. They had to be of the tribe of Levi. And until they could prove they were the tribe of Levi, they excluded them from the priesthood. Why? To preserve the holiness of worship. So that no unclean, unapproved person would engage in leading the people of God in worship. It's a concern for the holiness of God's people and the purity of God's worship. It's what we call sanctification. A concern for holiness in worship. So there's service, there's sanctification. If you look at verses 68 and 69, there is sacrifice. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect on its site. Here they're offering sacrifices on the place where the temple would be built before it's even there. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks, gold, 5,000 mines, silver, 100 priest garments. So they're making sacrifices and they're giving for worship, service, sanctification, sacrifice. I, I need you to understand something. Worship is not just the singing of songs and the praying of prayers. There's much more to worship than that. Those certainly are worship. But understand, the greatest act of worship is a life that is lived in service and sanctification and sacrifice for the Lord. The great. Let me say that again. The greatest act of worship is a life lived in service and sanctification and sacrifice for the glory of God. Living in service for God is an act of worship when we give our time and our talents and our energy to to His glory and His cause. Sanctification is an act of worship when we strive with all of His might within us to walk in purity and holiness before God. When we make sacrifices, giving all that we have to the point that it costs us something, all that we are to the point that it costs us something for Him and His cause. These things are acts of worship. Living our life this way is ultimately the greatest worship. And we do all of this to exalt and magnify and promote God who is worthy of our worship. Listen, what this scripture is trying to teach us tonight is this. Because God is faithful to His word, we must be faithful to His worship. The reality of God's faithfulness. When we understand how incredibly faithful God has been to every word, every promise He's made, that should move us. That should stir our hearts to worship Him with all of our lives. Every aspect of our lives. And when we come together, that worship should overflow to the glory of God. Oh, listen, the promises of God that are all over His Word, they're not only given to make us feel better. They are to be a source of confidence. They are to be a source of reassurance and a source of peace and a source of hope. The promises of God most certainly should do that for us. And they should most certainly be seen as a source of rest and help. But I think we miss the fact that the promises of God should... Allow us to get a glimpse of his faithfulness and should move us to worship. Think about it. God kept his promise to deliver his people from Egypt so that he could be their God, they could be his people, and worship him. God kept his promise to bring his people back from exile so that he could be their God, they could be his people, and worship him. God kept his promise to send a savior. Jesus Christ, so that He could be our God, we could be His people, and worship Him. God will keep His promise to send His Son back for His own, so that He can forever be our God, we can forever be His people, and we can forever worship Him. All of the promises of God, those already fulfilled and those yet to be fulfilled, are to remind us, that God is faithful and worthy of our praise. So I say again, because God is faithful to His Word, we must be faithful to His worship. Let's pray.